plate, either in the back, um, back or in the front. If you'd like even more information about the church, you can find it in the visitor's table over during Coffee Fellowship, uh, across the way in the other building right after worship. Well, we're here in our Advent series. Advent simply means coming, um, where we celebrate as the people of God the first coming of Jesus into the world and anticipate his second coming, living as a waiting people in between the times. We're here in Galatians chapter 4, so turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. If you're not a Christian, aren't familiar with the Bible, we printed the text for you on page 9 of the worship guide. And if you don't have a Bible, grab one of those in the pew rack and take it home with you. We would love for you to have God's Word in your house so that it might be hid in your heart and bear the fruit that God alone can produce. Galatians chapter 4, starting with verse 4, reading all the way through verse 7, if you have your Bibles. We only printed verse 6, but we're going to read through Verse 7, this is God's word. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. The wisdom of man will fail us every time. But God's word is true And abides forever. We should ask his blessing on his word preached. Will you pray with me? Lord as we come to your word. It is our ask of you. As you sit on the throne. Reigning with all power and authority. Lord Jesus. Would your spirit lead us into all truth. That we might see the gospel more clearly. Maybe some for The first time having the scales of our eyes taken down by your spirit so that we might see you as the savior that we need. But in all of our hearts are great needs that can only be met by Jesus. And so Holy Spirit, draw us to the throne of grace. We pray this in the Savior's name. Amen. Um. Christmas is dark. Um, We like the sanitized version of it, perhaps, I think, as I thought about this, perhaps it's because we like like problems to be fixed rather than unfixed, and so we like, if you'll pardon the pun, a nicely wrapped up version of Christmas. We're satisfied momentarily, I think, by illusions of nice and clean because uh, it just seems simpler. Even if it's just for a month at a time. It just seems like all of the brokenness of the world can be covered over, wrapped up, if you will, if you pardon the pun, wrapped up into something and tied up with a bow. But it really is just a veneer that is for a moment over a terribly broken world. And I think nothing illustrates this reality, this truth that Christmas really is about darkness, more than the fact that 
all studies show that depression skyrockets after the holidays are over. There's a, there's a sense in which the veneer of nice and clean can only satisfy us for a moment before the rot of a sin-cursed world slowly eats the veneer away until the reality sets in. Christmas happened, the coming of Jesus into the world. Christmas happened in the dark. Israel was in occupied territory, taken over by the Romans at the time, having been occupied by the Assyrians and then the Babylonians and then the Greeks before the Romans set on the stage. The Savior of the world was born into a dirt poor family of teenagers. He had no home. At any point in his life, no home in his birth, no home during his life, no home in his death. Almost immediately after he was born, he was driven out of his own homeland because the king was committing infanticide to protect his power. It was dark. It was dark because he was born into a world that was cursed by sin, where death reigned in the hand of the evil one. This is what is, is so necessary. There's always these things that the veneer just can't cover. We don't need a veneer, my friends. We need light in the darkness. Light from light. God from God. So here's the question that we've been asking of this passage over the last few weeks. Why did the Father send the Son, particularly the Son? Why was it when God became man in the person of Jesus, why was it that it was God the Son that became man? And the answer that we've said first is because He's the Son of God. He comes from the Father. He is one in essence as Keaton. So well pointed out from the Nicene Creed, he is of the same essence. He proceeds from the Father as the Son. Of course it would be the Son because the Father sends and he sends out from his own being the Son and therefore he sends the Son into the world. And of course it would be the Son because that's what a Son does. He raises his hand and says, Father, I'll do, I'll carry out the mission that you have to do in the world to save sinners who are under the curse of sin. I'll be light in the darkness. And the second thing that we've said is that the coming of the Son was to give His people new status as sons. Because it's not simply enough to be saved from something. God in His amazing grace actually saves us to something. He does more than simply save us from His wrath in the person of Jesus. He actually saves us into a status of sons. Sons in the Son. So that God doesn't just simply say, you know, you're on your own. I've cleared away the debt. Now go live for me. He says, I adore you. You're my son. Because you're in my son. Just as I, Jesus says, just as the father loves me, I'll love you. Abide in my love. Like the love of the father, the son, the spirit has now ours in Jesus Christ. Those belong to Jesus. Get his status. Get his place in God's household. So why the Son? Because God sends. He sends out His own being and the Son comes. Why the Son? To give us a new status as sons. But God's, Paul's not done yet. 
Because God's not done yet. In Galatians chapter 4, there is even more for us. Because there's more to God. There are more persons in the Godhead than just two. It's not just the Father and the Son. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And all three are generous in their own being. They give. The Father gives from His own being to the Son. And the Father and the Son give of His own being to the Spirit. There is in the in the Godhead, in, in the one God who exists in three persons, a constant giving. And he has not done giving because there's more generosity in him to give. The Father who sent the Son is not done sending. Verse 6 of Galatians chapter 4. God the Spirit must also be sent. And because you are sons, this is what it means to be a Christian. To give yourself to Jesus and he gives himself to you and you become a son of God. You go from a child of wrath to a son of God. And because you are sons, God continues to send. God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. This is the son was sent into the world to accomplish salvation outside of us. That's what the son did. He accomplished the salvation outside of us. He earned a status for us. He now sends the spirit to apply that to us. That we might experience what he's done for us. And what he's done might become ours. Now there's a lot of confusion about the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Let me see if I can clear up some of that confusion. First, he is a person, not a what. Second, he is one with the Father and the Son. This is a big, like, don't just let that hit your ears and skip off like a rock across the lake. He is one with the Father and the Son. Their three persons cannot be divided from each other. They are one God existing eternally as three persons. They cannot be divided from themselves. Let me take us back again to the fourth century. We've We've learned a lot from our friends in the 4th century, particularly in, in the area of Cappadocia, modern-day Turkey. Great men. Gregory the Great said this, No sooner do I conceive of the one that I'm illumined by the splendor of the three. No sooner do I distinguish them than I'm carried back by the one. When I think of any one of the three, I think of them as a whole, and my eyes are filled and the greater part of what I'm thinking escapes me. You've had this experience, haven't you? You're like, all of a sudden, you're lost thinking about God as he's revealed himself in the scriptures. And, and Gregory says, yep, that's happened to me too. That's how I said last week. That's how you know you're, you're really engaging with the one true God. You can't get your mind all the way around him. And then he, Gregory comes back. When I cannot grasp the greatness of the one... I begin to contemplate the three together again. And what I see is one torch. And it cannot be divided or measured out in undivided light. This is a beautiful imagery. Three persons who together make one light because they are one God. And here's what I want to say. Don't let this, that skip over because it's foundational to understanding what God the Holy Spirit is doing in the world because God does as he is and just as the three persons of the Godhead 
are indivisible, their works in the world are indivisible. The Spirit comes from the Father and the Son, and He has not come to do His own thing in the world. He's come to do what the Father and the Son together with Him are meant to accomplish for us and for our salvation. He came down just to accomplish. Back to the 4th century, Gregory had a friend called Basil. Basel, you'll remember one of the things that Basel said when he thinks about the Trinity. He's like, it's like a chain. You pull one end and the other end moves. When I think of the Father, the Son comes in and moves. And he says this. He says, he who eternally exists in the Father can never be cut off from the Father. Speaking of the Son there, it can't be cut off. You can't like separate them out. Or can he who worketh all things from the, by the Spirit ever be disjoined from his own Spirit? You just can't separate you can't separate them out in their being, and you can't separate their works out from one another. And so he goes on. Likewise, moreover, he who receives the Father virtually receives at the same time both the Son and the Spirit. For it is no wise possible to entertain the idea of severance or division in such a way that the Son should be thought of apart from the Father or the Spirit disjoined from the Son. John records a conversation for us between Jesus and his disciples on the night before Jesus is going to the cross and leaving them. And he says, hey, 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 this is a good thing for me to leave you. I'm going to send another one just like me. Just as I was your comfort in this world, he will come and be your comfort. Just as I have gone to the Father, I'm not going to him to leave you alone. I'm going to, to send another one back to you. You're not orphans. And because you're not orphans, the spirit of the Son is mine, is yours too. And so you begin to see like the order. These are who the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are. And so when they carry out their works in the world, they carry them out this way. The Father plans, the Son executes, and then the Spirit applies those things the Son has given to us. Here's the inseparable nature. Hear it from Galatians chapter 4 again. Listen to this in new, new light, right? Because you can't separate their works. When you pull on one work, you pull on the work of the Son. The Father's there. The Spirit's there. All joined together. When you pull on the chain of the Father's work, the Son and the Spirit are all there working together. Hear that in new light in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God the Father sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God the Father has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. We're going to come back to Abba, Father in just a minute. So now you're no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. And so often I think the starting point of the confusion around the Holy Spirit is to kind of separate him off like he's doing his own thing apart from the Father and the Son. And perhaps what I want us to do here to greater understand how the Spirit operates in the world today is by taking us back to how he operated into the life of Jesus. Because there was no life ministry, death, or resurrection of Jesus in his body apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. 
The Spirit's role in Jesus' ministry was absolutely essential and it can become, it should become a template for understanding what God the Spirit does in the lives of God's people today. So four works. The role of the Spirit in the creating of the body of Jesus, the role of the Spirit in the ministry of Jesus, the role of the Spirit in the death of Jesus, and then the role of the Spirit in the resurrection of Jesus. When Mary first was told that she would give birth to the Savior, an angel comes from heaven. God sends him. Mary, this is what's going to happen. You're going to give birth to a child, and he will be called Jesus, which means God saves. And he'll be the Savior in the world. Now, Mary's got a good question at this point. She's like, um, how can that be? I am a virgin. I've never been with a man. And the angel answers back. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. That's language of Genesis chapter 1. The Spirit hovering over creation to create something brand new. The Spirit will come and therefore the child will be born. Not by normal procreation efforts, but by the Spirit taking the, the, the humanity of Mary and combining it together to create a new creation. And He will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now Hebrews chapter 10 verse 5 says this, Why could Jesus die on the cross bearing the sins of His people? Quotes from the Psalms about the Father. A body you prepared for me. You begin to see the inseparable works of the Trinity. The Father by the Spirit created a body for the Son. And then the Spirit empowered Jesus in His earthly ministry, just as had been promised in Isaiah chapter 42. And announces, a serv- God says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send my servant into the world. Israel has been a terrible people. I'm not going to abandon them. Instead, I'm going to send a servant who will do what they could never do for themselves. And that servant is announced. He's, behold, my servant who has my spirit. As a result, he'll tend to the Broken and the poor and in those who are like like smoldering wicks, just fixing to die out. He won't let die out because he's got my spirit. He'll tend to the lowest, most vulnerable and most broken in the world because he has my spirit. And then we pick this up. If you got your Bibles, you can look with me at the end of Luke chapter 3 and beginning of Luke 4. Because in this passage, this is this is the... This is the baptism of Jesus. And then right afterwards, his temptation in the wilderness. Because if in the incarnation, if the spirit created a new man in the incarnation, and in that Jesus was taking on our humanity, what happens at his, at our, at his baptism is he's taking on our sin. He's identifying with us. He's going further and deeper into the darkness. It wasn't enough for him to say, I'll identify you with your weakness. And so, yes, I'm going to identify you with, with you in your sin so that he could fully bear the sins of his people. It's a public declaration of sort. The baptism of Jesus, a public declaration of sort to say, I'm here to bear the sins of the world. 
And so just as the Spirit of God clothed Jesus with our humanity, He was here present clothing clothing Jesus with our sins. And at the same time, the Spirit was clothing Him with the armor for the battle that would be ahead of Him for the next three years. Luke chapter 3, verse 32. And the Spirit descended on Him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. You are my son. With you I am well pleased. As he was bearing, beginning to bear the sins of his people, he was equipped with the Spirit and the Father's voice from heaven. This is my son. I'm pleased with what he's doing. This is why I sent him. And this is why he has my Spirit. And now with the approval of the Father and the equipping of the Spirit, Luke 4, 1. Now just jump ahead to the beginning of the next chapter. Luke 4, 1. He's got the Spirit. He's got the approval of the Father as he's bearing, going into the world, identifying with sinners and full Of the Holy Spirit, Jesus returned from the Jordan, was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. It's not by accident that those two stories are married together as he identifies with our sin and then go fights the battle that we've all lost in our lives. And he does so bearing the full weight of Satan's temptation endured in his body as the Son of Man, but because he has the full power of God by the Holy Spirit, he conquers 40 days in the wilderness with all that Satan could unleash on him. Or consider Jesus' statement in Matthew chapter 12, verse 28. How could it be that the Son of Man could defeat the evil one. It's by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons. There's literally no aspect of Jesus' earthly ministry as he's overcoming sin that was done by us in the darkness of the world. There's no aspect that he is overcoming the curse of sin that was not overcome by the ministry of The Holy Spirit. Jesus' entire life, from birth to death and resurrection, had this banner of Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Deep dependence. And so, look, we can immediately jump. We can just draw that connection right back to when we face our own temptations in this world. And we do. Satan is like a roaring lion who's sneaking around in the bushes under the grass looking for anyone to devour. He does not care who or how he takes down God's image. He just wants to eat us alive. He's craftier than any of the other creatures. You will find this. You will be deep into temptation to sin before you ever realize what's happening. Most of the time, you will think it's about your circumstances or the other people. And you pull back and go, oh, wait a minute. This is of the evil one. He has crafted a scheme for me yet again. But when you're in that moment, it's easy just to give up and say, well, I've fallen again. I might as well fall as far as I can. But take heart and fight. 
For you united to Jesus who endured the temptation and came out victorious by his spirit. And he has given you that very same spirit that was his strength in the midst of his temptation for power for your own fight. So be on guard. And when you are tempted, fight with valor. And then fight with the tool that the spirit uses because he's married himself to certain tools. Word, fellowship with other Christians, prayer. You're going to see why something like seeing Jesus together, Bible journal is just so essential to us. However we accomplish it, we need to be in God's word together because this is the tool that the Spirit has used. Not by power, but by my, but by my Spirit. It's an upside down kingdom, right? The meek things. It's not just the meek who will inherit the earth. It's the meek things that God uses in the hands of his spirit to produce the most powerful effects in the world. So, the ministry was essential in the incarnation of Jesus. It was essential in his public ministry. And it, he was essential in Jesus enduring the cross. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 13 and 14. The blood of bulls Goats sprinkling defiled persons with the ashes of heifer. Those are insufficient because they point forward. They point forward to Jesus. So how much more will the blood of Christ, blood that was shed in our place as a substitute for our sins, bearing the full weight of God's wrath in the body that the Spirit had prepared for Him. How did the Son of Man bear what no man could bear through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God? And as a result, he's able to purify our consciences from dead works to serve the living God. How do I know that Jesus was enough in the payment for my sins and God's wrath is put away for me? So I can become a son in the household of God because the Father planned it. He equipped the Son with a body, powered Him by the Spirit so that He could bear the full weight of God's wrath. Poured out on him. Calvin's got this beautiful saying. He says, he says uh, that, great, uh, that great Genevan pastor, John Calvin. The father bestowed on his only begotten son's son these things. Not for Christ's private use. But that he might enrich poor and needy men. And you know. Calvin then goes on, he says, as long as Jesus is outside of you, he's of no benefit to you. As long as he remains outside of you, all of the things that he earned remain outside of you too. We have to be united to him in his body. And so the Spirit has to take the things that belong to Jesus and unite us to Jesus by faith. Faith is like a conduit where I just... Latch on to Jesus and all of his benefits flow back to us again. And that is a work of the Spirit to unite us.
by faith to Jesus, to make the scales of our eyes fall away so we can see the beauty, the necessity, the sufficiency of Jesus. He's enough. He's all that I need because God has provided him for me by the Spirit. And by the Spirit, he awakens dead sinners to come alive and say, oh, I'm now alive and I see my sin in all of its fullness, in all of its great wickedness and I can see Jesus because the spirit doesn't convict of sin unless he's also going to take us to the throne of grace that we can find comfort there he comes into our hearts verse 6 crying that's a, a rich word in the original language crying it's the it's actually often it's the cry that arises in pain and agony or fear or distress. Imagine like a little child who wakes up afraid in the middle of the night because she heard something. Not sure what it is. The uncertainty is there. The fear is there. The weightiness of the situation is there. And so what do they do? They go outside of themselves when that happens and they cry. Father, come help. And these words, Abba, Father, he's crying. These words, Abba, Father, it's not the first time it shows up in the Bible. The first time those words show up in the Bible, when Jesus, the night before he was going to bear our sins on the cross, looked at the cross in despair and distress with the full weight of what was coming the next day. And he said this, crying out, Abba, if there's any other way. And this is so Paul just takes up that word and he says, you see what's happening? When God sends his spirit, he creates such distress in our hearts that he takes the words of Jesus and puts them on our lips. He comes in crying, Abba, Father. He echoes it in Romans 8 from our assurance of pardon today. And just a little bit later, he tells us, when we don't know how to cry out anymore in our own distress, the Spirit testifies to our spirit, and he teaches us to cry out, Abba, Father. He puts the words of Jesus on our hearts, awakens us to our need of Jesus, and then in our experience of distress, gives us the words of Jesus. It's a big part of what the Spirit does. This is what it means, by the way, to be led by the Spirit. Those who are led by the Spirit are led right to Jesus as the only one that we need for all that it is that we need. He leads us deeper in the gospel. One more work of the Spirit in the work of the Son. Because as we said at the beginning, Advent is about waiting. <clears throat> Light has broken into the darkness, but the darkness is still a present reality for us, we live between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. All of these things are true, but there's a fullness that's not yet true. And you see, if the Spirit was present in the incarnation of Jesus, empowered him in his earthly ministry, enabled him to bear the full weight of God's wrath at the cross, he was not done until he raised the Son of God to new life. Romans chapter 8, verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, 
He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. How was the Son of God bodily raised from the dead the same way that the Son of God was given a body by the Spirit according to the Father's plan? But that Spirit now is taken up home in God's people. And He will also, just as the Trinity is indivisible, the works of the Trinity are indivisible, you can't separate them out. The Son didn't do that just to leave us alone. He sent us his spirit of adoption to take us all the way home. And Jesus, who dwells in you by a spirit, that spirit, his spirit tethers us to all the benefits of Jesus. It can't be separated. So that John can say in John chapter 4, Jesus can say in John chapter 14, because I live, you will also live. And that day you will know, that day when he comes again, you will live on that day because my spirit has made you one with me. And in that day you will know that I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. So that the Holy Spirit, when he dwells in Jesus' people, is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is what's beautiful about the gospel, about our sonship. Is the son has made his home in his people. And he will keep you until he brings you into his home in the new heavens and new earth. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, our only hope is in your finished work, and our only help is in the Spirit that you send. But what help do we need besides Him? And so, lead us, Holy Spirit. As we come to the table, lead us to the all-sufficiency of the work of Jesus. Take these ordinary elements of bread and wine and use them to the extraordinary ends of making our hearts leap for joy that we belong to the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.